Good morning. I'm reading from the scripture is found in Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 12. I'll be reading from the NIV, hear the word of the Lord. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the Lord met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, by whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. Let's pray once more. Father, we read from your prophet Jeremiah that your word is like fire. It's like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. So, Father, this morning, would you bring your fire? Would you bring the hammer that we need to soften and, and reshape our hearts? In some cases, to, to break our hearts so they can be remolded in the likeness of how you would have us shaped. Father, help us this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, help us to see the glorious news here in Acts chapter 4. This amazing thing that you have done. And help us to be moved by this. May the truths contained in these words change our lives. May we be a different people having heard what we are about to hear from your word. So help us, we pray. Continue to tune our hearts to yours. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and by the power of your Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. How impacted are you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ? How much is your daily life affected by the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, second person of the Trinity, got up out of the grave and now at this very moment lives and breathes in his resurrected and glorified body at the right hand of God the Father? How impacted are you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ?
Just this past week, I came across some advertising for a fitness program. Full disclosure, I ended up not following the fitness program because it was too hard. Um, and this was in writing. It was a printed ad, so I didn't have to transcribe it from watching a, a TV ad or something. But I want you to listen to this pitch. There's nothing worse than rolling through life in the passenger seat. Great opening line. You wake up, go to work, and drift through each day with no direction or driving force. Then you drive home, flip through your favorite TV shows, go to bed, and repeat that same cycle the next day. Weekdays all run together, and you find yourself trying to pass the time until the weekend so you can relax, unwind, and finally enjoy yourself. But weekends have no meaning, and you have no real reason to enjoy them either, and like the weekdays, they all start to run together too. You see people around you moving ahead, and you start to wonder what they have that you don't, and what they're doing that you're not. You start doubting yourself. Your thoughts beat you up every minute of the day to the point where you feel like you'll always be stuck right where you are in this funk forever. The mental struggle turns into a physical struggle. You're not exercising like you used to because you don't see the point. You try program after program or challenge after challenge to get your body and your mind back into a place where you actually feel great again. But these programs turn out to be temporary band-aids, and before you know it, you're right back at square one. Each failed attempt drains a little more hope from your tank to the point where you're running on E. E for empty, right? The goal of this rigorous fitness program being pitched was to take back control of your life. For the man or woman whose life isn't affected by anything other than their daily routine, the designer of this program that I was looking at wants to offer a solution. He wants the person reading the ad for his plan to be impacted by something other than just be, being drifting through life. The solution offered by the designer of this particular fitness program was to become so confident in your ability to complete daily challenges that you break out of the routine that you've fallen into. Your ability to accomplish things no one else is attempting becomes the thing that impacts and motivates you. You become impacted by you. We are all impacted by something. Right? Many of us are impacted by many things. And when I say impacted, I simply mean motivated. So where does the resurrection of Jesus fit in your life, in your list of what impacts and motivates you. Two weeks ago, we were witnesses to the miraculous healing of the lame beggar in chapter 3. And between the healing at the beginning of chapter 3 and the passage that we're looking at today, Peter preached his second sermon. As we'll see today, the, the healing and sermon in chapter 3 had gotten the attention of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And that brings us to today's passage. So if you're not there already, I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Acts chapter 4. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Generally, up to this point, the reception the apostles have received has been good. Right? As a matter of fact, it's been really, really good. You'll remember the 3,000 that we were told responded to Peter's sermon back in chapter 2. We're told, following Peter's healing of the lame beggar in chapter 3, that all of the people 
who were near the, the scene of the healing, all of them ran together to them, to the apostles and to the man who had been healed. They were in Solomon's portico, and they ran to them because they wanted to be closer to th- this action. They wanted to get a closer look at what had just happened. You know, it wasn't until the healing in the second sermon that the eyebrows of the religious leaders were raised. In today's passage, we have a front row seat to the first real opposition the apostles have experienced since Jesus commissioned them. So how will they respond? Will they fold under pressure? Will they compromise their convictions and yield to the threats to cease what they've been doing? The passage that we're looking at today, it breaks down into four scenes. So if you're taking notes, I want you to jot down just four words. The first word is arrested. This is our first scene. We'll see it in verses 1 to 4. Tried is the second scene. That's made up of verses 5 to 12. Warned, seen in verses 13 to 18. And the last scene will be freed. And we'll see this in verses 19 to 22. So scene number one, arrested. Look at verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. You know, you get the sense in verse 2 that the religious leaders in Jerusalem were beginning to wake up to the fact that their nightmare of Jesus wasn't going away. In Matthew's gospel, following the burial of Jesus, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate because they were concerned the disciples would steal Jesus' body and, and spread the word that he had risen from the dead. They were concerned that the disciples would lie. They asked Pilate to secure the tomb, and, and Pilate agreed to them making the tomb as secure as they could. They sealed the tomb and set a guard. And Matthew then tells us that there was an earthquake. An angel rolled away the stone covering Jesus' tomb, and the soldiers, Matthew tells us, became like dead men out of fear of the angel. Matthew says that some of the guards went into the city to tell the chief priests what had happened, and the chief priests end up paying off the soldiers to lie and spread the story that the disciples stole Jesus' body while the soldiers slept. So in this grand twist, right, the The religious leaders did not want the disciples to lie, and they, the religious leaders, end up being the ones who are lying. And not only are they lying, they're paying off the soldiers to lie as well. So in the minds of the religious leaders, Jesus' body disappears, yet things remain relatively quiet for a couple of months, at least as far as they know. And then, all of a sudden, Jesus' troublemaking disciples, who they had feared would steal his body, they began causing trouble around the temple. Luke tells us the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So what are we to make of this great disturbance? We'll see in a minute that the court that Peter and John would be brought before was the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of 70 men plus the high priest, both Sadducees and Pharisees, with Sadducees 
holding the majority of seats. As the spiritual leadership of Israel, there was pretty sharp distinction between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. For example, the Sadducees tended to be more politically minded, while the Pharisees more religiously minded. Also, we know from several New Testament passages that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, while the Pharisees did. So, given the theological understanding of the Sadducees, it's safe to assume that part of the reason why some of the leadership that opposed Peter and John in verse 1 actually has them arrested is because they didn't agree with their teaching on the resurrection of the dead. More on why they are arrested will be learned during their trial, and we'll see this in just a few moments. For now, what's important to understand is that Peter and John are arrested because they're teaching and proclaiming in Jesus' name. So I asked a minute ago where Jesus' resurrection fits in your list of what impacts and motivates you. Peter and John have been so impacted by the resurrection of Jesus that they were teaching and proclaiming about Jesus and his resurrection, and ultimately this led to them being arrested. Notice what Luke says, almost parenthetically following news of the arrest. Look at verse 4. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. One thing that we will notice as we go through the book of Acts is how good news follows bad and vice versa. There's a constant ebb and flow or, or push and pull in this account of the Acts of the Apostles. We will be tempted to say, oh no, and then almost immediately find ourselves thinking, oh yes. We could despair over the troubling news of Peter and John's arrest, but Luke immediately hits us with the good news that the church was continuing to grow. So saying the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000 leads some commentators to suggest the total number of Christians would have been well in excess of 10,000 people at this point. Let us be encouraged by this pattern that we see in Acts. When faced with what looks like certain defeat, realize God is at work and he cannot be stopped. Oh no, Peter and John have been arrested. And at the same time, oh yes, many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000 isn't that how life often is for us? Terrible news comes our way, and whether it's discovered a short time later or maybe a ways down the road, we see how God was at work in what seemed like only tragedy. Peter and John's sacrifice of being arrested was not for nothing because the text tells us many who heard the message believed. This should shape the way that we talk about the ups and downs in our lives. Brothers and sisters, be quick to assess the challenges in your lives for how the Lord is working for His glory and your good. Be quick to look for the ah yes every time you have to utter oh no. So scene one draws to a close. Peter and John, they've been arrested, but the church has continued to grow. And this brings us to the second scene. We're calling this one tried tried look at verse number five 
The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? We saw back in verse 2 that one reason Peter and John were arrested was the Sadducees were greatly disturbed by the apostles' teaching and by their proclaiming the resurrection of the dead. The other reason was hinted at in verse 2, but it's completely revealed in verse 7. The religious leaders are concerned for guarding the power they have, and they want to keep any competition or any competitors in check. The immediate concern is that the healing of the lame beggar and the teaching and proclaiming that followed has occurred on temple grounds without the express consent of the religious leadership. What must be determined is who granted the apostles authority to do what they've done. Sanhedrin doesn't deny the man has been healed. Luke will make this clear in verse 16. What they want to know is how was it done and who had okayed it. In other words, we didn't tell you you can do this, so who did? We read this question, by what power or what name did you do this? And it reminds us of questions that we will often ask that we really don't want an answer to. These elephant-in-the-room questions, they often have a very low probability of providing you a response that will be to your liking. Look at how Peter answers the question in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being, called, are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Back in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, being filled with the Holy Spirit resulted in the ability to speak in other tongues. Here in chapter 4, Peter's being filled with the Holy Spirit results in the ability for Peter to speak boldly. We saw a few weeks ago how the moment the apostles and disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit had been prophesied back in Joel chapter 2. But this moment of Peter being filled with the Spirit is actually prophesied by Jesus during his earthly ministry. One recording of this is found in Luke chapter 12, verse 11. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Peter's Holy Spirit-filled response to the Sanhedrin reminds us of his exhortation found in his first letter that he would write years later. 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. In Peter's response, we find boldness met with kindness. His response is, is a model of Paul's exhortation to Timothy. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. 
that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Someone might say, well, well, Peter answered the way he did because he was scared. After all, he had been arrested and was being forced to give a defense for his actions. And that might be a reasonable conclusion had, he, had we not heard from Luke that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And that later, in verse 13, the Sanhedrin will note the courage of Peter and John. What we have before us is a Spirit-filled man whose life has been changed by Jesus, and he is exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit in a very tough situation. He is kind, yet courageous. Notice, too, that Peter's kindness and courage does not mean that he tempers his message. Peter answers those who assume their authority was ultimate by saying he and John had received their authority from Jesus of Nazareth. Had he left it at that, the Sanhedrin, they could have scoffed at him. They could have laughed at Peter. But he goes on to say something that should have chilled the Sanhedrin to their bones. He says, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. One commentator points out that Luke intentionally included Peter's words that the once lame man stands before you healed. So what's significant about this? The Greek word for resurrection is made up of the word which means standing. The point is, to, to the Greek mind, resurrected people were people who were standing up as opposed to dead people who were lying down. And this once physically lame man is now standing, and because of his recently found salvation, in Jesus. He is now promised the resurrection of the dead where he will stand for all eternity with his God. Peter's not finished with his response to the Sanhedrin. Not only does he provide them with where the authority and power to heal that he and John had used, where that had come from, he reminds them that they had killed Jesus and that God had raised him from the dead. He now goes on to quote one of the more Frequently quoted texts in the New Testament. Three of the four gospel writers use Psalm 118, and Peter will use it in his first letter. Look at verse 11. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Unfortunately for the leadership, Peter's words would have reminded them of a conversation they had had with Jesus So after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, after his cleansing of the temple, and after cursing the fig tree, Matthew 21, 23 tells us, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus responds by telling a couple of parables, and then Matthew says, verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. 
They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Peter's quoting Psalm 118.22 was at the same time the worst possible news and best possible news the Sanhedrin could have heard. It was terrible news for them because they were clinging to their authority and they themselves were the ones who were, sti- were and, and still at that very moment rejecting Jesus. They were only impacted by themselves. It was terrible news because as Jesus had said in Matthew 21, 44, anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. At the same time, the Sanhedrin hearing Psalm 118, 22 was good news because the stone that had been rejected is now the cornerstone. Look at Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Can you imagine the Sanhedrin hearing this? Jesus, the cornerstone, offers salvation to all who will call on his name, but only his name. Peter was sharing the incredibly good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Sanhedrin and proclaiming to them how they, the the ones who had rejected Jesus and killed Jesus, could be freed from their sin. He was showing them how they could be raised from spiritual death and stand with the once lame beggar who's now standing in their presence. We've seen a similar situation when Jesus stood trial. What was intended to be the means by which Jesus was shown to be guilty ended up instead revealing the guilt of the prosecution. Peter and John were tried here before the Sanhedrin, but it was the Sanhedrin that were shown to be the ones who were condemned. So as with modern day court proceedings that we are familiar with, Peter and John must receive their verdict. We'll see this in our third scene, warned. Look at, look at verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So before we get to the verdict, I want us just to marvel over verse 13 for just a minute. Why were Peter and John courageous? After all, as the Sanhedrin observed, they were unschooled and ordinary men. They could not be impacted or or motivated by themselves because they were all too familiar with their limitations and failings. So where did their courage come from? What does the text say? origin of their courage was the company they had kept. They'd been with Jesus. This was so obvious that even the Sanhedrin could see it. You heard from Luke 12 earlier. Listen to Matthew 10, verses 19 to 20. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking you. 
a benefit to those who spend time with Jesus is that they are filled by His Spirit. Just as Jesus had told them, the Spirit of God empowered them to speak. This begs the question for you and me, can it be said of you, she has been with Jesus? Brother, are others around you able to say, he has been with Jesus? Is that something that is obvious about us? Are we impacted by Jesus to the point where those around us take note that we have been and regularly meet with Jesus? As with the Sanhedrin, the the evidence of our having been with Jesus should at times leave our detractors speechless. Frustrated, the the Sanhedrin orders Peter, John, and the, the man that had been healed to leave. Look at verse 15. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. This was customary. This is what would happen. Verse 16. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. I mentioned earlier that the news Peter delivered to the Sanhedrin was at the same time terrible and wonderful. It was terrible because it was made explicitly clear to them that they were lost in their sin. The sad fact that these men can't bring themselves to even refer to Jesus and his gospel by name is very telling that their hearts are still hard to the truth. It's clear in verse 16 that the it that they can't deny is the miracle. They just referred to the notable sign. So then they have no issue with calling the miracle by name. But, But look again at verse 17. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. It's possible that they didn't know how to refer to this new movement that they were concerned with. But it's also possible that their hearts were so hardened that they couldn't bring themselves to call it by name. The Bible's answer for how to be saved is faith and repentance. Faith is exercised by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus, and repentance comes through confessing our sin. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Since the Sanhedrin wouldn't call Jesus by name, Luke helps us in verse 18. This was their warning, a command to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. We could have left it there, they could have marched out and gone about their days listening to the authorities. But we have a final scene. And the final scene is freed. We'll see that in verses 19 to 22. Look at verse 19. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. 
As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. We're led to believe had Peter and John remained silent, they they could have been immediately freed. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. I love that. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Peter and John's wording here is incredible. They are okay with the the court of public opinion disagreeing with them, right? You be the judges. The way they've worded this really paints the Sanhedrin into a corner, though, because obviously what is right in God's eyes is listening to and obeying him. And to think that the Sanhedrin could be in opposition to God is absolutely astounding. Therefore, it doesn't matter what people think of Peter and John. They, they don't care. Look, when we are walking in obedience to the Lord, it doesn't matter what others think of us. Friends, let's take a cue from Peter and John and check our people-pleasing at the door. You know, I'm tempted to steer some comments toward the youth about people-pleasing. And, and yes, I, I want y'all to know, to hear, that we should not be concerned about what others think and be led to do things that they ask us to do just to please them, right? But, but just as much as I owe that to the youth, I owe it to us as well. Because listen, I, as an adult, and I know many of you do too, care too much, way too much, about what people think of me. And we should take a note from Peter and John here. But how should we square Peter and John's actions with what Paul commands in Romans 13, where he says that we are to submit to the authorities? As is often the case with Scripture, there's a healthy tension between passages like Romans 13 and, and what we see here in Acts 4. In Romans 13, Paul says to be subject to the governing authorities and, and tells us the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. So why didn't Peter and John submit? Because obedience to God supersedes obedience to man. This is a Joshua moment for Peter and John. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Our obedience to the Lord doesn't have to be programmatic and scripted. So how did Peter and John do it? Look again at verse 20. As for us, We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Our obedience to God is the natural testimony to His faithfulness. All that He has done, both in His Word and in our lives, should be the fuel for our obedience. Look, the natural posture for a Christian is seen here in Peter and John's response. We are to be walking billboards and megaphones who regularly speak about what we have seen and heard. See, hear, speak. See, hear, speak. That is the pattern for the Christian. This was the problem for the Sanhedrin. They couldn't speak about all they had seen and heard because they were blind and deaf due to their rejection 
of Jesus. Psalm 118.23. We just heard Psalm 118.22 a few moments ago. And verse 23 says, The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Is it marvelous in your eyes that Jesus is the cornerstone? That was what was propelling Peter and John to do and say all that they were doing and saying. So look at the results of those who have been impacted by the resurrection of Jesus. Peter and John were courageous in the face of trial because they had been with Jesus and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter and John proclaimed to the Sanhedrin that despite their warning, they would obey God because they couldn't help speaking about what they had seen and heard. And the people who had heard the apostles' teaching and the proclamation of the resurrection of the dead in Jesus, they were praising God. The man who had been crippled for more than 40 years had been healed. These people had been impacted by the resurrection of Jesus. How impacted are you by the resurrection of Jesus? Robert Lowry, an old Baptist pastor, composed a hymn by putting music to some words that he had come across. The hymn is titled, How Can I Keep From Singing? It's very fitting considering the oh no and ah yes moments and acts in, in our lives. Considering all that we've seen and heard, we cannot help but speak. Listen to these words. My life flows on in endless song above earth's lamentation. I hear the sweet though far off hymn that hails a new creation. Through all the tumult and strife, I hear the music ringing. It finds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? What though my joys and comforts die, the Lord my Savior liveth. What though the darkness gather around, songs in the night he giveth. No storm can shake my inmost calm while to that refuge clinging. Since Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? I lift my eyes, the cloud grows thin. I see the blue above it. And day by day this pathway smooths since first I learned to love it. The peace of Christ makes fresh my heart, a fountain ever springing. All things are mine since I am His. How can I keep from singing? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this amazing thing that we have seen and heard. And may our response be the same as Peter and John's. May we say today and tomorrow and every day forward that we cannot but keep speaking about all that we've seen and heard. Father, we thank you for this great news that Jesus, the stone that was rejected, is the cornerstone. And in him and in him alone, we can find salvation. It's my prayer this morning that if 
anyone is here and they are not in Christ Jesus, if they are separated from you by their sin, Father, that your Holy Spirit would change that today. That he would open their ears and their eyes and their heart and their mind to Jesus. And that today would be the day that they claim salvation. We thank you for this table that is before us. And, and we remember the words of our Lord Jesus to remember him. So, Father, as we prepare our hearts to gather around this table, help us to rejoice in what it is that you have done. Thank you for your love and your kindness and your goodness and your mercy. And thank you for Jesus, the cornerstone, in whom we can be saved. It's in his name we pray, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, amen.